Well, hey, everybody, welcome. We're spending some time this month rolling out our new vision and mission statement. And if that statement from me provokes a yawn from you, that's understandable. You know, I've been a part of a lot of churches and a lot of organizations and even corporations over my lifetime that spend a lot of time thinking about crafting and trying to communicate a vision and mission statement. Honestly, a lot of them are just things that sit on a shelf collecting dust and don't really matter that much in terms of the day-to-day experience of that organization or church. Here, we really try to take seriously crafting a statement that not only reflects who we hope that we are, but who we aspire to be, who we hope that God is calling us to be. And so on page five of your bulletin, if you grabbed a bulletin on your way in this morning, you'll find the full statement that uh, we're rolling out this month. Last week, we spent a little time focusing on the first third of that statement, what it means for us to live into being Christ-centered. And today, we're going to look at the second third of that statement, what it means to be an open and welcoming community. But wouldn't you know it, we've spent all of this time trying to craft the perfect language, and then it just so happens that this week, Miriam and I were out And we came across what is obviously a much better vision and mission statement that we should have chosen instead. Uh, Mike, I think we've got a photo of that. Yeah. (laughs) If only we had known a year ago that we could have just said, First Presbyterian Church, Cowboys for Jesus. We would have saved ourselves a lot of time. I even wore my cowboy boots this morning just because I'm trying to... I'm trying to embrace it a little bit. Uh, Also, they make me an inch taller, so that's not, that's not a bad thing either. Last week, we read together that opening third, that opening section, Christ-centered. Today, I want us to read together again the vision statement, and then the next third of what it means to be open and welcoming community. So, let's take a look at and read together. We seek to be a Christ-centered open and welcoming community, addressing the challenges of our time. And then under open and welcoming community, let's read, we are family of faith, composed of people of all ages, with a variety of backgrounds and traditions, including those who are new or returning to faith or church. We extend God's love and hospitality to one and all, offering belonging, connection, friendship, and compassionate care. We nurture opportunities for people to gather, learn, grow in faith and discipleship, and deepen relationships with one another. So let's spend a little time this morning trying to unpack and uh, flesh out a little bit what some of those things mean as values for us here at First Press. And we begin, as we always do in Scripture, today reading a story that comes to us from the Acts of the Apostles. This is the sequel to the Gospel of Luke, also written by Luke, that describes some of the things that happened in those first years of the early church in the first century. I'm reading today from Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 26. Listen to God's word for us today. Then... An angel of the Lord said to Philip, Get up and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road, we're told. 
So Philip got up and went. Now, there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of the Candace queen of the Ethiopians in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home, seated in his chariot. He was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go over to his chariot and join it. So Philip ran up to it and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. Philip asked, do you understand what you are reading? And the eunuch replied, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him. Now, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth, and his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch asked Philip, about whom, may I ask, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip began to speak, and starting with this scripture, proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? Philip commanded the chariot to stop, and both of them, Philip and the eunuch, went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord. For you alone are our rock and our redeemer, and let all God's people say, amen. Well, last week we looked at what it means to be Christ-centered, and we looked at that through a particular framework introduced by Dr. Paul Hebert, an anthropologist and missiologist, who framed that around bounded sets and centered sets, that we can be a bounded set where we have a clear boundary that keeps the outsiders out and the insiders in, and in that reflection considered instead what it means to be a centered set, having Christ in the center of our lives, a recognition that all of us in this very diverse uh, socially, theologically, politically, etc. congregation, all of us are in different places around that circle, and yet we're all trying to work towards a Christ-centered life. That kind of orientation provides a lot more grace and space for us and for one another so that we can, in humility, accompany one another on a journey of faith, not getting caught up in whether or not we agree on everything, but instead seeking together to live in a more Christ-centered way. So with that in mind, we go to this next part of our vision and mission statement, which is related, because being a Christ-centered or a centered set community I think provides a more open and welcoming space for us. But what else does that mean? And why do we spend so much time trying to articulate what it means to be community and how we go about creating or nurturing community? We do that, I think, because we recognize that it's a priority, that there is a real sense of urgency. And I would argue there's more urgency now about community in our society than there ever has been. This last week, I came across an article by journalist David Brooks 
And he articulates a lot of what we've already reflected on over these past few months. Brooks writes, Recently I've become obsessed with two questions. The first, why are Americans so sad? The rising rates of depression are well publicized, but other statistics are troubling too. The percentage of people who say they don't have close friends has increased fourfold since 1990. The share of Americans aged 25 to 54 who don't have a significant other has also risen dramatically. More than half of all Americans say that nobody knows them well. The percentage of high school students who report persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness has shot up from 26% to 44% just in the last few years. We've reflected together a lot about what is sometimes described as a pandemic of loneliness in our society. Brooks goes on, my second question, he says, is why have Americans become so mean to each other? He goes on to describe a friend who is the owner of a local restaurant in New York and says for the first time in his long career, almost every week he has to kick somebody out of the restaurant who's gotten into a screaming match with a server or somebody else. We see these stories happen all the time on airlines and in other places. Reports of nurses and teachers who are leaving their lifelong profession because they can't handle the meanness that they encounter from patients or clients or parents. This last week, Miriam and I were visiting with friends of ours up in Wellington. He's a teacher in the school district. And as I was talking to him about looking forward to going back to school, he said, well, kind of. I love the kids, but boy, they're parents. <laughs> He's had more parents yelling at him in the last year than ever before. Some of these are parents of kids that he's taught their older siblings years ago. And he says to the families, look, you know me. You've known me for years. I'm teaching the same thing I was teaching your kid years ago. Why is there so much meanness now? Well, Brooks reflects that there have been a number of theories about this over the last few years. There's the technology and social media theory that social media is kind of driving us all crazy. And yeah, there's probably some truth to that. There's the sociology theory that we've increasingly lost our participation in civic and other organizational or neighborhood groups. And we know from books like Bowling Alone and other research that that's true. We have increasingly lost track of those civic organizations that connect us to each other. And then there's also the economic story that increasing economic disparity is causing inequality, insecurity, alienation, and pessimism. And Brooks says all of those things are probably true in part, but <clears throat> he says, I think the clearest answer is maybe also the simplest answer. We inhabit a society in which people are no longer trained in how to treat others with kindness and consideration. Our society has become one in which people feel licensed to give their selfishness free reign in a healthy society, a web of institutions like family and school, religious groups like us, community organizations and workplaces help to form people into kind and responsible citizens, the sort of people who show up for one another. And instead, Brooks says, it seems like we live in a society that's terrible at moral formation. Now, moral formation, he admits, is kind of a stuffy-sounding term. 
And so he goes on to define it. And this I found fascinating in light of our series this month. Here's what Brooks says. First, what we need is a way of helping people learn to restrain their selfishness, to keep our evolutionarily conferred egotism under control. And I thought, what keeps us from being self-centered? An invitation to be Christ-centered, to follow instead after the ways of Jesus Christ. Second, Brooks says, teaching basic and ethical, social and ethical skills, like how do you welcome a neighbor into your community? How do you disagree with someone in a constructive way? And I thought, that sounds like being an open and welcoming community. Brooks goes on to say, number three, on page three, helping people find purpose in life. Morally formative institutions hold up a set of ideals. They provide practical pathways towards a meaningful existence, like how can you dedicate yourself to serving those living in poverty or protecting the environment or loving your neighbor? And I thought, that sounds like addressing the challenges of our time. The very vision statement that we aspire to here at First Presbyterian. So if we're seeking to be that kind of church, if we want to be able to provide that kind of moral formation for our society, and if it's so clearly needed, then what's wrong? Well, I don't have to tell you again, we see the headlines all the time. We know that the reality in the United States is that participation in attendance at local churches is in decline. We've seen it now for years, and it doesn't matter now what kind of church tradition you belong to. Whether you're Catholic or Orthodox, whether you're evangelical or non-denominational, whether you're mainline or offline or the party line, it doesn't really matter. Church attendance is in decline. And wondering about that, we see a lot of reasons why people don't find church to be relevant or important, and some of that is fair enough. People don't want to be in churches where there are people fighting about things, where people are mean or mean-spirited. People don't want to be in churches where it seems like they're judgmental, especially if they're judgmental about them, who they authentically are, or people they love and who they authentically are. They don't want to be in places that seem hypocritical. They don't want to seem, be in places that seem boring or irrelevant. And so church attendance, understandably, has begun to decline. And that pushed me this week to wonder, what is it that we are called to do and be? What is it that we can live into as this open and welcoming community that not only provides the space that people so desperately need, but helps all of us in this community grow in our life of faith and in our life of community together? And as I thought about that, I got pushed again and again back to this story from Acts chapter 8 about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. One of the things I noticed right away is that Philip is pushed out of his comfort zone, literally pushed out by the Spirit. I love that opening line. The, Philip sa the Spirit says to Philip, get up! <laughs> it's like a spiritual alarm clock. That's the kind of alarm clock I need. Get up! And... Go down to this road, this wilderness road. And it seems at first like Philip is the one out of his comfort zone, but in fact, they both are. The Ethiopian eunuch is not in Ethiopia, not attending to the court of the queen, which is his role. He's out of his comfort zone as he is in Gaza too. 
He's traveled a great distance, we know, to come and to worship in Jerusalem. So he is some kind of a God-centered person. Clearly there is something about his life that has been introduced to Judaism, and he's seeking to find a place there. But he's also out of his comfort zone. They both are. And it would be tempting to read this story through a lens in which Philip is the hero and the Ethiopian eunuch is the recipient of the hero's generosity and kindness and witness. But even though one is Ethiopian and one is a Jew, this is not a black and white story, not by any stretch. Instead, both of these people coming to this encounter have rich, varied, and complex histories Philip, yes, is a Jew who is seeking to be a witness to Christ in the days of the early church. But the Ethiopian eunuch is not someone who comes simply as a recipient in the story of the good news of the gospel. He's already somebody who has put God at the center of his life. He's somebody who comes with wealth and status, with a role. He's riding in a chariot. He's reading from a scroll of the prophet Isaiah, both things that would only be available to somebody who is affluent. He is somebody who, in his own context, is an insider. But perhaps now, he feels a little bit like an outsider. We're not quite sure what his experience in Jerusalem would have been, but as Philip encounters him, it's possible that Philip could have had in mind some of the Old Testament writings, like in Deuteronomy, where eunuchs are specifically excluded from the gathering of the community of faith. He's an outsider in that bounded set orientation. And yet, then again, there is scripture in Isaiah that says for those eunuchs who are following in the way of God, that there is a place for them to be insiders. And If Philip had been caught up in that bounded set orientation, he could have argued with himself about which part of Scripture he should have paid attention to. Is this Ethiopian eunuch outside or is he inside? And Philip clearly dismisses all of that entirely. Because what he recognizes instead is that just as he is a Christ-centered or a God-centered person, that this other person who's totally different from him from a different culture, from a different socioeconomic status, from probably a different uh, social or political or economic place, that this person from a totally different place in his life, seeing the world totally differently, is also Christ-centered, that is, God-centered. And so, they are both able to overcome all of those differences between the two of them, to share a space together, literally and emotionally and socially and relationally, and be in dialogue together, to listen to each other, to hear each other, to see and know each other, as each other authentically comes to that encounter on this wilderness road. And because of all of that, Philip is able to invite him to consider the faith that he already has through a new lens to be Christ-centered, to interpret this scripture from the prophet Isaiah that speaks of someone who was humiliated and was made to be an outsider unjustly, perhaps the eunuch's own experience in some communities, to say that that is also the experience of God made known to us in Jesus Christ, who came and lived among us. Oh, what a wonderful gift to know that God knows how I feel, what my life experience has been about. What a way to be open and welcoming to this person who Philip encounters outside of his comfort zone on the wilderness road. 
And then, as they make their way along, the eunuch sees water and says, what's to prevent me from being baptized? And I would have expected Philip to give him a long list of reasons. Are you kidding me? Let me begin to tell you the reasons why you shouldn't be baptized. After all, we in our community have this long list of beliefs that you have to check the boxes of. We have this long list of behaviors that you have to agree to ascribe to. And then, once you believe all the beliefs and you behave in all the ways, then you can belong, then you can be baptized. But no, Philip flips that right upside down in the way that I think any open and welcoming church ought to flip things upside down. Instead of believing and behaving and then belonging, first belong. I see that you are someone who is trying to put God at the center of your lives. Let's accompany one another on this journey and belong together in this community. And then the behaviors and the beliefs will sort themselves out as we're in dialogue and relationship over time. And so Philip says, you're right. Let's go for a swim. And off they go into the river. All this is made possible because both of them are willing to be out of their comfort zone. Both of them are willing to engage one another as real, authentic people, to be seen and heard and known. David Brooks, in his article, then appeals to some of the writing by a 20th century philosopher and novelist named Iris Murdoch. Murdoch spends a lot of her writing focusing on moral philosophy, and she writes, A moral life is not defined merely by great deeds of courage or sacrifice in epic moments. Instead, moral life is something that goes on continually, treating people considerately in the complex situations of daily existence. The essential moral act is casting a just and loving attention on other people. Now, normally, she says, we go about our days with self-centered, self-serving eyes. We see and judge people in ways that satisfy our own ego. We diminish, we stereotype, we ignore, reducing other people to bit players in our all-consuming drama. Oh, that hurts, because it's true, isn't it? But, she writes, we become morally better as we learn to see others deeply, learn to envelop others in the kind of patient caring regard that makes them feel seen and heard and understood, that asks, what are you going through? And then waits for an answer to the question. I become a better person, Murdoch writes, as I become more curious about those around me, more skilled in seeing from their point of view, as I learn to perceive with a patient and loving regard. And that kind of character requires not just a good heart, but good social skills, skills that we have to practice and learn together. How do we disagree with respect? How do we ask for and offer forgiveness? How do we patiently cultivate friendship? How do we sit with someone who's living with grief or brokenness? How do we become a good conversationalist? All of those things are things that we need to practice and learn over time. And here at First Press, we want to commit ourselves to doing that every day, every week as we gather for worship. Over the years, Miriam has been working with some of our volunteers who greet you at the door when you come in at the morning. And one of the things that she's been helping to remind them and all of us in leadership is that first impressions are lasting impressions. Most visitors have made up their minds about whether or not they're going to stay here at First Press in their first 10 minutes after they walk through the door. 
which is before they've heard from me. It's before they've heard any music. It's in their first 10 minutes, which means it's in their encounters with all of you. And ordinarily, they're asking themselves a couple of questions. One, is there anybody here who's like me? But more importantly, asking themselves, is there anybody here who's interested in me? Who will take an interest in me? A study by the Barna Group found that the number one thing people are looking for in a new home is knowing that they'll be welcomed, and then knowing that they'll find friendships, and then knowing that they'll find support during the difficult times in their lives. The single most important factor in why a visitor comes back to a church is because they found a sense of authentic community. Not the right theology, not the right doctrine, not the right politics or the wrong politics. It's about community. And so, yes, we pour a lot of effort into making sure that worship is a meaningful and inspiring experience. We pour effort into making sure our educational programs help to teach us about the ways of Jesus Christ and how to live in the world around us. We offer mission opportunities so that we can serve those people in our community and beyond in the world. But all of it comes back to what we do as we form community together. Now here's a pause this morning for today's commercial message. This fall, we'll continue a program that we've been doing now for a couple of years called Simple Suppers. Because people eat supper and it's just that simple. There's sign-up sheets out in the fellowship hall this morning. We have about 10 people, I think, who are serving as hosts this fall. They're going to offer three times, one a month in September, October, and November, for you to gather with a group of people, hopefully people you don't already know, which means strangers, which means some of them will be strange. Errs. <laughs> and commit yourself to just gathering for dinner, breaking bread together. There's no program, there's no agenda, it's just people breaking bread at tables and getting to know one another. And we hope getting to know people that you wouldn't have chosen to get to know otherwise. People that wouldn't ordinarily be on your friend list on social media. But people who you connect with as fellow journeyers on this Christ-centered life. So I encourage you to sign up today. If we run out of hosts, we'll find more hosts. There are plenty of tables for us to gather around this fall. Another way we do this is by offering an additional expression and time for worship at First Presbyterian. Yes, this traditional 9.30 a.m. service will continue this fall, but starting on September 10th, after Labor Day weekend, we'll reintroduce our First at Five service, First Presbyterian at 5 o'clock, First at 5. The gathers here at 5 p.m. every Sunday in a different kind of service, a casual service where I'll even wear jeans when we gather. We'll sing together a different repertoire of music, a modern repertoire of music that has a little different rhythm to it, lyrics which might feel a little bit more in our vernacular. It's a different kind of service at a different time. Because some people just don't want to get up on Sunday mornings. I get that. Some people are away on Sunday mornings, perhaps, up in the mountains. They come back in the afternoon. They still want to gather with the community for worship. There's lots of reasons why, but we know that there is a reason for us to offer another expression because it's part of living into being an open and welcoming church. So some of it, yes, happens here. Some of it is about what we do as a community, but some of it 
to be honest, just like Philip, is when we're pushed outside of the space onto the wilderness road in the community around us. Now, some of you know that my wife Miriam also teaches a few fitness classes at local gyms here in town. And last year, she had an experience where there was a woman in her class, we'll call her Annie, was asking her after class, so what else do you do besides work here at the gym? And Miriam said, well, I work at a church. Oh, what church? And then the conversation <laughs> quickly began. And Miriam told her a little bit about this church, and she was describing it. The woman said, oh, yeah, I've heard about that church. You see, I have a friend who takes her daughter to a dance class that's held at that church. And she keeps inviting me to bring my three-year-old daughter, but I don't know. You know, the thing is, I'm not actually a very religious person. And Miriam said, oh, these are community classes that we offer on our campus. You don't have to be a religious person to go. Oh, but I would have to join your church, right? No, Miriam said, these are community classes that are offered on our campus. You're welcome any time to come and to participate. And Annie shook her head. She just wasn't quite sure how to make sense of that. It didn't fit the narrative that she had about what church is or how churches behave. Well, a couple of weeks later, Miriam noticed that Annie and another woman in the class, we'll call her Maria, were having a conversation in the back, but they kept looking up at Miriam while they were having the conversation. So Miriam kind of got the gist that they were talking about her. And so eventually she made her way back to the back of the class. And sure enough, Annie and Maria were talking about the fact that Maria, who is a recent immigrant to Fort Collins, also comes here to First Presbyterian to English language classes that are offered through our partnership with the Matthews House. And Maria was starting to tell Annie about this church and why she should come too. Maria said, it's the most welcoming church. That's a church that we found in our community loves to have all kinds of people in their building. Annie said, but are you a member of that church? And Maria said, no. No, you don't have to be a member. You can just go. They'll welcome you there. And Annie still wasn't quite sure what to make of this. It still didn't fit her narrative. So finally, after the class was over, Annie came back up to Miriam one more time and asked about bringing her daughter to a dance class. And Miriam, one more time, assured her that she would be welcome. The thing is, Annie said, I'm not religious, and I probably will never be religious. Maybe saying something about her own history with the church. And Miriam said, no, you really are welcome. And finally, Annie, with resolve, said, so it doesn't seem like your church is really a church. It seems, it seems like it's a community center. Open and welcoming community. Yeah, that's true. It's true, especially perhaps for her, with whatever narrative she's written from her own life experience about what she brings to the table, the baggage perhaps that she's attached to church. And maybe she'll never bring her child to a dance class. Maybe she'll never attend a worship service. But we've helped to rewrite for her the narrative of what she understands church to be. And maybe she'll tell another friend that story as well. And it turns out that First Press is making a difference in Maria's life as a recent immigrant helping her to learn English and connect to a variety of opportunities and experiences that she will newly discover here in Fort Collins. All of these things remind me that together, 
We're learning and leaning into the Spirit's guidance as we move outside of our comfort zones, whether along a wilderness road or right here on Sunday morning in the unfamiliar terrain of pushing yourself to approach somebody new. Don't be too aggressive or creepy about it, but be welcoming as together we figure out how to listen to one another, how to be with people who are outside of our ordinary social circles as we learn to see and navigate the world from different perspectives and points of view as we discover together belonging as we learn and put into practice the simple ways that we honor one another, that we see one another, that we share together this journey of faith. In a moment, we're going to invite you into a little bit of a wilderness road or unfamiliar experience by teaching you a new song. This song is one that we would sing at our First at Five service on Sunday evenings beginning in September. It's written by a new artist. His name is Wendell Kimbrough. During the pandemic, he began writing songs for his church in Texas based on modern translations of psalms. And the words not only model for us a little bit of that open and welcoming community, but they help remind us of some of the values that we affirm. See how good it is gathering with friends. Welcoming the stranger in, see how good it is when God's children live as one by the Spirit we become the open arms of God to a world in need of love. Friends, I invite you to learn with David this song and then rise as you're able and join us in singing together. <laughs> 